My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to the first episode of the Let Nothing Move You podcast when it comes to the book of Romans. That's right. For those of you just tuning in, uh, my name is Christian Ashley. We have just gotten through the entirety of the Gospel of Luke and had a tremendous time learning through that, seeing what God had in store for us there. Excellent quality stuff there. I highly recommend you guys go back and listen to those episodes, 24, 24 chapters of Luke, 24 episodes for you to look up there. Lots of fun, but we're looking to the future now, and that, of course, being the book of Romans. And, of course, I'm planning on 16 episodes, 16 chapters. We'll see how things go from there. When we do get a Genesis, sometimes I may go up to two chapters an episode, depending on you know the meat of what's going on there. But for right now, let's get into Romans. It's going to be a fun time. We're going to start with Romans, of course, chapter one. This is going to be verses one through seven. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ, Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just getting into things here. Paul is one of those figures in Scripture that for some reason in this age has just become too controversial for some to think that he deserves to be part of the Bible. And we'll get to that in a second. But I love this man. And we didn't go through Acts. You know, I debated doing that since we started with Luke. But at the end of the day, it just felt right to go from Luke to Romans because of just some of the issues that are written about here. That will affect the entire church, the church then and the church now. The the things we need to talk about that we keep on the wraps or we're afraid of confronting. And Paul is not afraid to confront these issues. And that's one of the reasons I like him. He's bullheaded. He's strong. He's that he's learned how to turn egotism into something else, this more powerful force that does not do evil, but instead does good for those around him. To know, hey, I am this brilliant and smart, and instead of saying, hey, I'm this brilliant and smart, no, the only reason I'm able to do this is because of Christ Jesus, who gifted me with this, who is able to help me understand things better than other people so that I could help you understand them the same way he's brought to me. And as someone who we've spoken before about this, really struggles with egotistical pride and learning how to use natural gifts God has blessed me with well without making the focus on me, I love watching through Paul's journey from this Pharisee who hated Christians, as we see in the book of Acts, until he has a personal encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and his life is forever changed. He's no longer the person who 
has Christians in prison and wants them dead and destroyed. This is a man who seeks after God and wants to bring the whole world to see who saved his life, who has saved us all. Now, when it comes to the book of Romans, uh, most historians and scholars believe that it was written in the midst of Paul's third missionary journey, at least most of the reputable ones. Uh, it's a circa about uh, 57 AD, and probably wrote this while he was in uh, the city of Corinth. Uh, this would be a little before he was later imprisoned for sharing the gospel and sent to Rome. So outside of the deaconess Phoebe, who we'll meet in chapter 16 briefly, he doesn't seem to have much of a personal understanding of the people in the church that was in Rome. So this is more like his outsider perspective on some of the matters they needed. They wanted to have him discuss for them because obviously they had heard of him. And this church here in Rome was full of both Jewish and Gentile converts who needed the directions from someone who knew more than them about how to run their church and follow after Christ, which means they sought after Paul. I mean, like I said, more than likely because they had heard of his notoriety within the church and more than likely had heard about his fantastical conversion to Christianity through his missionary journeys and people coming back to him. We see even before he had come to faith, they knew enough to come to faith and that some of the Jewish people who were in Rome, some of, excuse me, who were in Jerusalem, during the uh, Pentecost, had heard Peter's message, and we see in Acts 2, and came back to Rome. Like, Rome is specifically mentioned out of everything else where Jewish converts to Christianity came from. So they brought it back to Rome, introduced the concept to their fellows, but they didn't have enough of a backing of truly understanding everything. They had come to faith, and that was great, but they had no real teachers. So they needed someone who knew things so that they could figure out, okay, here's how we run the church. Here's how we love each other. Here's how we understand God better and understand each other better as well. And we look at Paul here. He names himself an apostle of Christ. And we uh, discussed this in Luke. And these are people that Jesus directly taught. Now, he may seem a strange addition to the fold, but Jesus did personally speak with him on the road to Damascus. And no matter how short the encounter, this qualifies Paul as one. Because Jesus directly spoke with him, had him realize his need for Jesus, maybe not in that moment, but he still got the teaching there that when he did come to faith, he can say more than a lot of other people could to have been taught by Christ. And for all we know, Jesus could have taught him again. I mean, there's a three-year gap period between when he saved in Damascus and before he really comes back to see the disciples and the other apostles. So it easily could have happened and might not just been recorded. But it's enough to where he is able to say, I am an apostle, and no one's going to take that against him. Because if he wasn't, there's 12 other guys in charge who would have easily said, he's not one of us, and talked down to him. And they would have been in the right if he's just saying this stuff. But they didn't, because he is. He is one of them. And even with all this, he was already an extremely learned man from his Jewish pharisaical training. That made him a natural student of Christ as well when he spent three years learning what this was all about before he actually went out and stepped out into the the rest of the church. That shows me humility. That shows me I want to have my facts straight before I start on this. And I definitely appreciate that a lot because there are way too many people 
And there's an earnestness. It's a good earnestness, too. Uh, to Oh, I've just become one of Jesus's. I want to proclaim his name out there. It is, it is a very good thing in that person. The desire to let others see the gospel, have them understand them. But it needs to be tempered. It needs to be molded into something better because babies, they're not ready. It's not their fault. Like, you don't pick up a baby, a newborn baby, and say, all right, here, lift up your head and walk. Well, two of those things aren't going to happen because the muscles aren't ready for it to happen. The baby hasn't matured enough for that to happen. In the same way, young Christians aren't ready either. So he took the time to learn. See, this is what I know from my training, but that's intellectual. What about the personal relationships I need to have with people? And how I misunderstood the intellectual side of Judaism to actually learn who Christ actually is, who God actually is. How it, Paul also doesn't really spend most of his time raising himself up. Like he gives his credentials to people who don't know him. Like, obviously, that's a good idea. Like, hey, what qualifies you to tell me uh, what to do about Jesus? Well, he gives that, but he doesn't spend all of his time there. Instead, he chooses to establish the legitimacy of Jesus Christ as leader and Lord of the church. Without Jesus being who he said he was, Paul has no authority to speak to the people. Like There are many naysayers out there who like to downplay what Paul has to say. As at, Some of them, at best, will say it's lesser scripture. And in my opinion, more often than not, that's because they don't like Paul, and they don't like what he has to say. But at the end of the day, I mean, looking at him for who he is, who he was, you have to say, if you're legitimately following Christ, this is one of God's own, and I have to listen to what he's saying here, because it is inspired by God. And that's fine. You don't like him as much as other you know, writers here. You don't have to like him as the best. But you got to respect him, and you got to listen to what he has to say. By truly listening to what Paul has to say about Jesus and who he is and what he desires from us, we are further enhanced as Christians in ways that the Gospels don't go into. Like, we get into ideas of Jesus dying for our sins and stuff like that, but Paul is one of the people who helps flesh those out, of helping us understand why Jesus had to do things the way he did, why God needed to save us from ourselves, why couldn't it have been done another way? We get that from him. And like, I don't need to defend Paul. He does that himself. But it kind of does kind of irk me when people look at him and just say, oh, I don't care as much about you because I believe this different aspect of Christianity and you're saying something different, Paul. Therefore, you're the one that's wrong versus the one person here who is speaking and writing inerrantly in Scripture, God's word. And it is what it is. So before I get heated, let's just move on. <laughs> Another part we see here is that a major part of Paul's message is that he wants to show the people that the gospel is meant for the world. All nations means all nations. Our responsibility is to reach those who we can wherever he sends us, whether that be at home or in lands we've never visited before. I mean, as Paul himself puts it in Galatians 3.38, this is in the NKJV, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ 
Jesus. There is no difference when it comes to who we are or what we are when Jesus is there. He's the grand unifier. Now, sure, there are different roles people have within the church. Those are differences. It's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about in the light of salvation, in the light of why we speak to people, it's to bring a unity to them that does not exist in the world and never will. Without people fighting for it, knowing it's impossible, but doing it anyways, because we've been commanded to do it. We've been given an impossible task. You know that, right? To save the world from itself by, excuse me, well, we didn't have to save the world. He did that. But to preach that message, message to people that the world has been saved and all they need to do is turn away from their sins and see him, that's impossible. You know why? Because not everyone's destined to come to him. Yet Paul still preaches the gospel to people who will say no. He still preaches the gospel to people who will say yes, because we don't know who is going to choose to say no to God. We don't say, oh, because of your character, I'm going to say you're never going to see God. You're you're never going to seek him. God has never sought you. You're just out there. No, that's not our job. And, you know, uh, all cards on the table here. Uh, when it comes to the idea of predestination and free will, I'm a yes and. It's I think it's both. There is some point in time where God, before the foundation of the world, said, these are the people who are going to be mine. Knowing in our character, we would choose to say yes to him. How that works metaphysically, I don't know. It's just how I look at scripture. And that's something that could easily be wrong. I mean, it could just be full on. It's just predestination. It could just be full on just free will. There are plenty of arguments for all, but I want to let you know where I stand on the issue so that you can reach your own conclusions and say, okay, Christian says this, the Bible says this here. How do I interpret that? Well, also say, uh, just to rile myself up here, other naysayers will point to how Paul explicitly points out this letter is intended for the church in Rome. And they'll take that to say what well, was only meant for them at that point in time. And I'm here to tell you that if that is Paul's intent, he fails utterly in this entire epistle. And I'm so glad I got that word right because I've never once said that word right correctly in my life. Epistle. <laughs> because Paul is going to say many of the same things in other epistles. So if he only meant it for Rome, well, he kind of sucks at his job. He kind of sucks at that. He did mean for this letter to go to Rome, but that does not mean that it is only for them. We go back to the Old Testament. Who was that written for? Primarily, who was the audience? The Jewish people. Does that mean we chuck it away because it wasn't written directly to us? No. If we get rid of the Old Testament, we lose a lot of the foundations upon which Christianity is formed. We lose the creation account. We lose Adam and Eve falling into sin. We lose the idea of Israel being used as the one nation out of all the nations in the world to redeem the whole world through the birth of Jesus Christ. It's the same thing. It has a primary audience. But guess what? That doesn't mean we can't learn from it, too. Truth is true. And it applies to all people regardless of their location. We have plenty to glean from this book, and we are better for its existence, especially in light of how many letters from the apostles that there are out there that are no doubt lost to time 
that could easily have been been gifted to us by God if he had wanted them to be added in the canon of Scripture. You know there's more out there that could have been a part of Scripture if God wanted it to be saved here. But we should all be grateful that God preserved what Scripture that he did so that we have more than we can possibly imagine to enrich our spiritual walks. 66 books of the Bible. Uh, If I remember correctly, New Testament is 27 of those. I probably should have looked it up before I said it. (laughs) But guess what? God could have added more, and it would have enhanced our understanding of of him and scripture and all that. I, I mean, as a completionist, I would love to have every single one down, but guess what? They didn't survive. And that's okay. We have enough. And that's good. Moving on to verses 8 through 15. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul starts off by praising the Roman church. Why? Because he has heard of their faithfulness and love for Jesus. This is a tremendous testament to the power of the church when it is healthy and serving God and not man. Can the same be said of your church, of mine? I truly hope so. If we were to get progress reports from whoever God ordained to do so, I really hope we'd get that passing grade. But a lot of times in my most cynical self, I don't see that. Learn from this. Doing our job well is something to be praised, not because the focus is on us, but because we are bringing people to him bringing people to God, seeing, uh, being that manifestation of him on this world to do his mighty works, to change a world that hates that, that wants nothing to do with him. And let's also see the earnestness of Paul's prayer for people that he has not met. Now, I was looking over some of the analytics for this. Um, there's a whole bunch of numbers. Here's the one I chose out of all those because it was nice and almost round. Like, depending on how much you can trust current metrics and people's self-reports, there are believed to be over 2.5 billion Christians on this planet right now, out of about a little over 8 billion at this point in time, if I remember correctly. Now, you may notice that's not the majority. But even then, I, and once again, uh, perhaps this is just who I am as a person, perhaps too cynically for my own good, I don't think the numbers are actually that high. 
as I am fairly certain every person who said yes to that question, I don't think they all meant it. Or they might have thought they did. But even if the number is higher than, lesser than, or exactly that large, that means there are Christians in the world, and we should be praying for every single one of them, because they are our precious brothers and sisters. As Paul rightfully states here, Christians should be able to mutually encourage one another with our faith. Our job is not to snipe at each other. Our job is not to look over each other's backs and say, oh, what you're doing over there? Or to report back to the higher-ups and say, oh, you know what they're doing? <laughs> now, if there's something that needs to be corrected, there's something that needs to be corrected. But don't be a busybody. Don't be a snitch. Do this out of love. It should be good. It should be fulfilling to be in the same room as a Christian. I'll tell you, the times I've spent uh, with my brothers and sister from the Systematic Geekology team together, uh, sometimes in a very enclosed environment, sometimes when we're just hanging out together, when those rare moments when we all get to see each other and hang out, have been a blessing to me. Even though philosophically, <laughs> theologically, sometimes we could not be more different for our own good. That's okay, because I see the light of Christ in them, and it encourages me. And I hope, I hope I can do the same for them. I think I did. But at the end of the day, that's what we're supposed to be doing. When we go to church, it should not be, uh, I have to go to church. I have to be around those people. It should be, I get to go to church with the people of God who enrich my soul. That is a beautiful and glorious thing that does not truly exist in the world outside of faith in God. Paul also states here that he would have liked to have met the Roman Christians before this point, but has been prevented from doing this so far. We know that he will eventually meet them under less than ideal circumstances while he's in chains and locked up, but he was still brought to them. Many times in life, you and I, we're going to build and craft plans that we think are good ideas. But then we try and force them before God wants them to happen and people are lesser for it. Sometimes when God prevents us from going where we want, he's protecting us from harm or causing us to be where we actually need to be rather than where we desire to be. We won't always know which is which in the moment, but we need to be discerning to the extent that we that we can, so that the kingdom can be enriched. 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel, and neither should we be. Without it, Without the gospel, we are lost in a world that doesn't care about us or love us. There'll be lies, there'll be temporary affections, but it doesn't love us. Only God's offer of salvation, only his true and holy love can save us from evil. But oftentimes we forget or grow lazy or just too mired in our own sin, and then we pretend not to be Christians. Although we know better, we say, oh, I go to church, but it's just because family goes there. Or, oh, it's just something to do on Sunday. Or 
you know, I like this part of Jesus. I don't like these other parts. When those are bald face lies. And we just don't want people to know who we actually are because we think we'll lose them. There is no shame in admitting that we have done this. But there is always shame in staying in that denial because the gospel is lessened by our failed resolve to stand for the truth. I mean, just think about it. I mean, could you imagine being, uh, let's just say, you're big into basketball, college basketball. I'm a big Duke guy. And I pretended not to be a Duke fan simply because I was in Chapel Hill, North Carolina a while back. <laughs> which did happen. And I'm surrounded by Tar Heel fans. No, I didn't pretend not to be a Duke fan. I didn't exactly broadcast it for the world to know. But if someone asked me there and someone did, like, hey, who's your team? Well, Duke is. Well, of course I got dirty looks because I'm in ground zero for, for Tar Heel fans. Well, imagine doing that in your own life when it comes to Christ. He's, our, he's on our team. He's our coach. He's our leader, the owner, and everything. And then I go up to someone and say, oh, I'm not on that team. No, no, no. I, I actually serve this team over here. That's not good. If if fellow Duke fans were to hear that I did that and get upset with me for not you know, admitting that I'm a Duke fan in the midst of you know, Chapel Hill, then, of course, we should feel upset when we do that to Jesus. And, of course, he's going to be upset at us, as he rightly should be. But he's not going to remain upset. Because we're going to come and ask forgiveness at some point in time, if we're truly his. Look, we need to remind ourselves what Christ did for us and then live that out. Even while knowing there's going to be a time when we fail and have to stand back up again. I know I, I, I was talking with someone earlier. So Christian, sometimes you get too depressing because you keep mentioning failure. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I see how you can get that because I... I mean, it's just me. I know the human heart. After having explored it in my own life and other people's lives, I know the human heart. That tells me I can be on fire for something, and then later on, it's like it was never lit in the first place. You know why? Because we're human. We're going to screw up. So we need to prepare ourselves mentally, knowing even though I want to seek after God, there's going to be some time later on where I'm going to sin. You know why? Because we're human. It's going to happen. There's going to be a time when I'm going to, someone's going to ask me, Christian, are, uh, are you a Christian? How many times have I heard that in my life? And there's been times ago, uh, yeah, sure, but, and then I'll go fully into it like I should. It's going to happen, but we can't let that keep us down. We can't let us stay mired in that awfulness of, I failed. I failed him. I'm worthless. Well, guess what? We are worthless, but he gives us worth. He looked at a worthless people who denied him and said, I'm going to die for them. Knowing that even when we come to him, we'll still screw up. We'll still reject him. Because he also knew that those that are his are also going to come back and ask for repentance. And the cycle is going to continue as long as we're alive. Because we're human, we're flawed. But that's okay. It's not okay to do those things, but it's okay to realize this about ourselves and not get discouraged. One of the worst enemies of our walk with Christ is discouragement. I mean, we even see Paul multiple times over Scripture getting discouraged because things are just that bad. 
I mean, you want to read later on through the list of the bad things that happened to him? Like, if he, if he didn't get discouraged, I'd wonder what was wrong with him. And yet Paul was faithful to the end. And yet plenty of other people were faithful to the end, no matter how many screw-ups they had. If you're out there and you're thinking, God can't use me, I said I was his, and I just walked away. Or I've always denied him. I've always acted like Peter whenever anyone asked me, are, are you Jesus's? Well, guess what? Jesus didn't give up on Peter either. He's not going to give up on you either. Just like he's not going to give up on me when I screw up. So why do I focus on failure? <laughs> because it's going to happen. We're going to screw up. We're going to choose to do evil, knowing it's wrong. But at the end of the day, also going to have the Holy Spirit in us and say, you know that's wrong. Repent. Be better. And we will. We will. Failure is a part of a Christian walk, of the Christian walk, as much as faithful services, because we are flawed people, but God isn't flawed, and he will always forgive us when we screw up. That's the great news. That's the good news of salvation. I don't need to get resaved every single time I sin against God, because guess what? I don't know about you, but for me, it'd be multiple times in a day. And I plan on living for a fairly long amount of time. So you can only imagine how many times I would have to get saved for the rest of my life every single time I screwed up and walked away from him in temporary apostasy. It, it'd be maddening. It would be fear-inducing. And God is not a God of fear. God is, is a God of love and forgiveness, while also being a God of wrath and judgment for those who don't follow him, for those who don't listen to him. Those two things are the same. He can be a, God, a loving God and a wrathful God. But for us who've accepted him, there is no more condemnation. And we need to live that out. And we'll finish up the book, uh, first chapter of the book of Romans by going to verses 18 through 32. Yep. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their few foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, 
slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteousness, or excuse me, God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. A lot of heavy stuff here. Now, I probably should have said at the very beginning, we're not going to get to every detail here in Romans 1. There's a ton. And like, I want to give you as much as possible without burning myself out. So I've looked into a lot of deeper stuff here. Like, look, let's start at the beginning of this. No one deceives us more than ourselves. I'm the biggest liar I know. And the person I target the most is myself. I, I have to be a fool to think otherwise. Because if I'm doing an honest assessment of myself, I know who's hurt me the most. And it's not been people. It's been me. Every human being capable of conscious thought knows that they are not good, even by their own measure of what good and evil is. Now say, oh, I'm, I'm a fairly good person. See, there's always a qualifier there. I'm, I'm good enough. By what standard? Their standard? could say they're good enough, well, we need to have a talk. Uh, what's good enough? Who does that apply to? You can always tell, ask them, okay, well, have you ever lied, never stolen, never cheated? But the list goes on and on. I mean, uh, in front of the show, Karai Rowe, he always goes through the Ten Commandments with them. Uh, check them out at Foreign Saints. Very smart, he and his wife, Meredith. Lovely people, very good at what they do. This is a great tactic to use as well. Because if you go through the Ten Commandments, you know, ignoring even the point about, oh, you know, worshiping God, because guess what? Most people aren't going to worship God. It's just how it is. We ask him, never stolen, uh, committed adultery, never coveted something. Most people, if they're being honest, especially when you bring them in light of what Jesus has to say on those things in a Sermon on the Mount, will say, oh, I've done that. I know I certainly have. I mean, the commandments, you know. Have I always honored my father and mother? Absolutely not. How many times I got my butt whooped as a child? Uh, a lot. Because I deserved it. Because I wasn't honoring them. I was doing evil. It's the same thing with people. Look, when it gets to us too, like we have all hurt the people around us. We've all blasphemed the truth and denied reality to make ourselves the God of our own personal worlds. Even when it doesn't look like it to us, sometimes we can lie to ourselves and say, oh, I'm not doing that. No, 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 I'm just, uh, I'm just being me. When that me we're talking about is a sinner. There are plenty of people out there as well who have no self-worth. And you'd say, oh, well, they're not doing that. Well, they are. They twist that they perceive that their lives should be something else. They deserve more. I should be more like this. I I'm feeling so down on myself because I need this. I deserve me, me, me. And they demand more from their current circumstances. And it is not to say... Let me make this explicitly clear that simply because someone is lacking in self-worth, that we just give up on them. That we just say, oh, well, here's the pill. Say, oh, well, just talk to someone. It's like, no, maybe they need to talk to someone. Maybe there's a chemical imbalance there that does need you know, to be treated medically. But that self-worth, that idea of who I should be, there is a point where we should all have self-worth because God selected us. Even those of us who aren't his, to be that one singular person, no one else could do that except for us, except for me. There's a point we need to go there. But when it becomes pride, 
when it becomes, well, I think this of myself, I deserve better. I should have money. I should have status. I should be married. I should have all these grandchildren. Whatever it is, well, we made ourselves an idol. And we'll get to that in a second, too. Now, once again, this does not mean that uh, those of us who are saved by Christ, that we then jeer and leave these people to their self-inflicted fates. No. What an awful testament to the gospel that has been seen time and time again in the world. Far too much for our own good. So, oh, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. And then no one ever goes out to reach them. Like, no, like, we need to meet them, to reach out to them where they're at and bring them into the light. Because that was exactly what was done for us when we were all enemies of God before he saved us from ourselves. Look, I was six years old when I came to faith. People say, oh, well, you didn't, you weren't around that long to do a lot of evil, but you need to talk to my parents. You know what? There are way worse children up there uh, who've done way worse than me for six years of their life. But guess what? I wasn't always a good kid. It's not like I was going out there and burning built down buildings or you know, stabbing people or anything like that. But I had terrible things to my parents. I had terrible things to my siblings. And that's a six-year-old. I've had plenty of time then to do even worse things. And yet God said that idiot right there that's talking back to his mother, that's pushing down his sister, that one right there, he's mine. I'm going to take him out and make him something different. Well, people in the world, we don't know what God has planned for them. You know why we don't know? Because we're not him as much as we want to be. So I don't get to write anyone off until they're dead. And even then, there's some theo uh, theological implications that could mean it's possible for someone to uh, become his. And I don't think that's how it is. I would like to think it is for there to be a chance for someone to do that. I just don't see it. It's really at that point in time, it's a confirmation of everything they lived their entire lives to. And they're going to deal with the, the implications of that. While someone is alive, there is always hope. There's always a chance. I mean, just think of what the people would have thought about Paul. The Christians would have thought about him. God, how could you ever select him to be yours after all he did? And the foolishness of that. When God looks at them and says, okay, sure, that's what you think. But look what I, what I can do with him. How many missionary journeys did Paul go on that are recorded? How many people came to faith because of his actions within the brethren, with the people that he brought with them to teach to teach and to continue that story. Timothy doesn't happen without him. A lot of the early church doesn't happen without him. I mean, you have what was in Judea and Samaria and a little bit in Damascus and Syria and all that, sure. And there were pockets elsewhere, but who came to strengthen them? Who came to write letters to them? Excuse me, who wrote letters to them and then as best as he could came to them? Paul did. That same person who was having Christians jailed and flogged and murdered and beaten and all these other terrible things. God came into his life and changed him. If we don't have that same passion for people that God does, nothing's going to change in this world. I need to look at the people around me that do not know him and say, God made them. And I want them to know how much he loves them as much as I know he loves me. Next up on our docket. God has revealed himself in the very nature of the cosmos in that he is real 
and he desires a relationship with us. Everyone knows this. They may not have formed the words completely, but everyone has a desire for something more that is inherent in the human spirit. Who am I? What was I made for? Where am I going? Why are we here? Everyone's going to ask us questions. And it's because there's something we're missing. And that's him. Reality as we know it would not exist without a creator. Uh, eventually, when we do get to Genesis, uh, after finishing Romans, like I'm, I would do my best to explain the many creation possibilities for, for how the world got made. Like including but not limited to creationism, Big Bang Theory, uh, deism, stuff like that. And I want to give everyone their due process. I mean, you can pretty much figure out where I stand. But if, if I'm being good to you as listeners, I'm going to give you everyone's arguments as best as possible without just those idiots. They think that. It's like, no, it's all trying to answer that question. How did we get here? Why are we here? What is my purpose in life? Look, regardless of how you believe the world was made, the imprint of its creator is omnipresent and can only be denied by the most closed off of minds that says, oh, this is just random. No one loves us. There's nothing out there that cares about us. Foolishness. Foolishness, Paul calls it. And speaking of further foolishness, idol worship isn't something we deal with too much in the West outside of the occasional cult that springs up. Yeah, you got your Santa Muerte out there, stuff like that. But it still exists in the world as a whole. But before anyone gets all high and mighty, let me take us all down a peg by showing how we in the West still worship idols. And the East does it too. Like the world does it. It's just how it is. Idols are still worshipped here. We just don't call them that. We have money. Cars, jewelry, sex, ourselves, and so much more that we place on a pedestal and proclaim as our gods, even if we don't use that word. doesn't matter what we call it, the end result is the same. And just like the foolish idol worshippers of old, we make ourselves fools that worship the creation and the creatures rather than the creator. Let's also see here that part of God's love for us is to allow us to be sinners rather than righteously killing us when we commit sins against him. It may not seem merciful to live in a world with evil, death, wars, famine, and so much more, but in light of eternity in hell, which we all rightfully deserve, I'll take God's mercy every time they have the chance to repent and turn to him. Like, look, it's just, I, I say it before, God cheated. And that is good. God is just and unjust. Because if God were perfectly in that way, just to where his own rules work, we wouldn't have made the cut. There would have been no salvation through Jesus. The moment Adam and Eve sin, boom, dead, starting over again. That's not how it works. Because God is unfair because God is loving and merciful, we have a chance that shouldn't exist, but does exist because God is love. Because God does not give his justice completely like he should, but he doesn't give it to us like we deserve because he loves. 
even knowing people aren't going to come to him, he knows some will. And you also have to go to this part, too. So uh, here we get to everyone's favorite hot button issue in homosexuality and the LGBTQIA plus movement. If you've been listening for a bit, you know where I stand. But for those who haven't, let me elaborate. Any member of the community is acting in a sinful manner in the same way that a heterosexual man or woman does when they engage in sexual practices that God has not ordained as good for us to do. You know why? Because it's all sin. Okay, we good? This does not make them worse than anyone else, nor does it mean we start witch hunts to track them down and force them to our way of thinking. You know why that doesn't work? Because why would I ever want to believe in something that someone tried to get me to fear rather than untruly understand? Our love for God does not is not derived from fear, at least it shouldn't be. There have been way too many people who have abused their position as leaders to get people to be afraid of what could possibly happen to them if they didn't know God, rather than explaining who God is and why, yes, there is punishment out there for sin, but also that God ultimately loves more and wants us, wants us to be saved from ourselves. All this means is that in their particular lives, their pride has allowed them to think that what they desire is better than what God desires. You know who that sounds like? Oh, that sounds like you and me. We just call them different things. We call it, we call it lust. We call it greed. We call it pride. We call it envy. Whatever. The point is, we're all sinning. And we do this exact same thing when we claim that the sins we lust after aren't that bad or we deliberately twist the Bible to say something that makes it look like it's okay. Look, homosexuality and everything else involved in the community is sinful. It is evil in the same way whenever you and I do sinful things. Paul isn't just singling these specific people out in their sin because their sin is just more overt than ours. But instead, he is using them as a further illustration of what he just went through in talking about idols and how humans twisted something that was good, that being worshiping God, and then made it evil and sinful by choosing to do so in a way that didn't honor God. Look, God created sex. Anyone who tells you differently has an agenda. That's how it worked. But what humans did is we took a good and holy thing meant for marriage between a man and a woman— and then created our own definitions for it. That went 50 different ways. All of them wrong, because there was one answer. Could you imagine, uh, on a test, with multiple choice, finding that there's only one answer, and then making a new one? That's what we do when it comes to, oh, God, I, I didn't really lie. I was just doing it to spare our feelings. It's like, uh, well, God, like uh, I'm just so poor. Like I had to steal that. I had to take that. Or, like, I had to talk bad about them behind his back because, what? Well, I mean, you know him, God, like, he deserves it. It's the same thing. They're not worse than us. We're not worse than them. We are all sinners who need a holy and loving God to correct us lovingly. We should also never engage, excuse me, not, number one, don't engage in those sins. Number two, we should never tell anyone who are engaging in those sins that what they do is good for them and those around them. But neither should we lead our hearts to hate and spurn them 
because that will never be an example of living out the gospel well. I'm not called to be that person with a megaphone saying, you're all sinners, you're all going to hell. God hates you. God hates God hates gays. God hates uh, thieves. He hates murderers. Blah, blah, blah. That's, that's not how this works. That's not showing the love of God. There is truth. People are committing sin and evil. Sure. But then I don't go in a way to destroy them and make myself look better. We are called to love, and part of love is correction, if done well. You know how we learn to do good things do and do good things well? We had someone say, don't do it that way. Don't do it this way. Why? Because they sought to teach us, this is how you do that. Because it's the right way to do something. I don't drive my car with my head outside the window because that's the wrong way to do it. I don't do, I don't drive my car while sleeping because that's the wrong way to do it. If I don't have a self-driving car, how the heck that works out? You know, I was, I was told to drive a car. All right, keep your eyes on the road, nothing in your hands. You have your hands on the wheel, looking around, making sure that when you're passing into another lane, that number one, you look in your mirror there, but then you look physically as well to make sure there's nothing in your blind side, your blind spot. Because that's how you how you learn to drive well. And when I did things wrong, you know, it was told to me, don't do that. Because if I wasn't corrected, I would think what I was doing was a good idea. This is the same way with parents and their children. You've got to correct them lovingly because you know if you don't, they're going to think, oh, it's okay what I'm doing right now. It's okay that I'm pulling my sister's hair. It's okay that I'm pushing my brother down. No, it's okay that I'm stealing from that kid on the other side of the classroom. No, those need to be weeded out and destroyed lovingly. As Paul states in Galatians 6, uh, verse 1, this is in the Good News translation, My friends, if someone is caught in any kind of wrongdoing, those of you who are spiritual should set him right. But you must do it in a gentle way and keep an eye on yourself so that you will not be tempted to. Know why Paul says all those things? Because it's easy for me, if I see someone else engaging in sin, to go out to them and say, hey, you're doing wrong. You need to shape up. And then wonder, oh, why are they doing that in the first place? Oh, this is actually kind of fun. I should do it myself. And then I fall into that trap too. Or I do it in a way that's not loving. It's not gentle. Gentleness is not weakness. Anyone who tells you otherwise is a fool. And I can call them fools because that's how... <laughs> There's no other way to describe it. It is foolish to say that gentleness is weak. Gentleness is love. Gentleness is coming to that person and say, hey, you're doing this wrong. Here's how you can do it better. Not because I'm some expert, not because I'm the best person in the world and most qualified, but because I'm in a more sober state of mind than you right now, and I can see where you're going. Let me help you. Just like I, hopefully you, if you see me doing something evil, would do the same for me. It's that easy. And we're not going to cover everything there. But we've got this whole big list at the end. And once again, it's simply like you did with homosexuality, using it as an example of the evil things we've done that twist the good things that God intended for us it, it, to further his idea that humans are evil by nature. And there is not a single person alive who is exempt from sin whose name wasn't Jesus. Guess what? Uh, and Jesus Christ of Nazareth born exactly at this point in time, who died on the cross. There are plenty of other people na born named Jesus. 
Not the same. There's only the one, and it ain't you, and it ain't me. This big list here of all these uh, felonies and misdemeanors and evil and sinful things, we've all been guilty at some point of our lives of all or most of the sins he lists. And at the very least, if someone, you have that one person who's just like, oh, I haven't done that, haven't done that, haven't done that. We have all been guilty of hating God. Because people who didn't hate him would listen to his commands and follow after him with their whole hearts. There would be no evil or sin in their lives. But people who do hate God, which includes you and me at our worst, our worst, I should say, we've all been guilty of that. I don't want to hate God, but I've done it. I said, why are you doing this to me? I deserve better. Why are you punishing me right now? What have I done? And I know what I've done. Even with my terrible memory, most of the time, I remember what I did to make him angry. And it's become, it's because it comes from a prideful heart that hates what he has to say and hates him for demanding I follow after him rather than me. We've all been guilty of that. All of us. Like, I haven't met this person who's followed even just that one, just not hating God without error, because they don't exist outside of Jesus Christ. Paul's point is that everyone practices these evils, and we should not do the same, lest we become the people who give our approval to evil, so that our own sins are approved by others too. And sometimes that's what we want. We want people to say, oh, it's okay what you're doing. Well, you can still do this for the kingdom, and you can keep that sin over there. As long as, as, long as no one finds out about it, it's fine. It's like, no, we want approval for the evil that we do so that we can feel justified, knowing we will never be justified. So go out there, take out the log from your own eye. Remember what Jesus said in Luke, in the Gospels. Get rid of the log in your own eye, of the evil in your life, of the sins in your life. Go to him, repent, say, Lord, I need to work on this. And then worry about other people. Because guess what? We are called to. But do it well. Do it with gentleness and do it without following into that sin as well. All right. So that was the first chapter of Romans. As you can see, there's a lot to glean from all of this. So thanks for sticking with me. Please, if you have a chance, leave a five-star review if you're at your podcasting platform of choice. Uh, just to help us with the ratings there to find more people. I have noticed an uptick with people coming. And oh, by the way, I got to apologize. I meant to mention this at the beginning. My audio for the last episode, again, sucked. I know some people don't like hearing that word, but it's true. I hated listening to it when it came out. And once again, it's not Joshua's fault. That was my microphone's fault. So I think I figured out what happened for real this time. So it shouldn't happen again. If it happens again, uh, I might start burning stuff down. I'm not technologically adept. Uh, we all know this. So if there's an issue, uh, I spent an hour last night and all I had to do was change one thing. And I still don't know why that worked. And I'm hoping things stay that way as time goes on. Because if this happens again, like I'll lose what hair I have m remaining. And I'm not ready for that yet. So thank you for that uh, listening to that PSA. If you're all interested in my fiction writing, you can find my works at StarvingWritersGuild.com or on Amazon by switching, uh, switching, searching for the name MC Ashley. 
If you're all interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then check out the other members of the Anazal Ministries podcasting network. Contact me at letnothingmoviepodcast at gmail.com. And I'd also like to extend a special thank you to Joshua Noel for the editing that he does and for the music that he adds to the podcast. And with all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you.